I think with printmaking, there's some guardrails there, right? There, you have to do certain things to achieve certain things. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gilzambrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. In 1915, Ross F. George published the first edition of the Speedball textbook, which quickly became the superlative resource for artists and letterers of all ages and skill levels. This is a great resource and inspiration for the gig poster gang or folks who just want to develop their fonts and letter forms for screen printing or relief work. In celebration of the 105th year anniversary of the first edition's debut, the 25th edition of the Speedball textbook has a convenient lay-flat construction and 120 pages of examples, contributors' works, and innovative technical insights that is sure to inspire and appeal to scribes and enthusiasts across the spectrum of skills and experience. There's a link in the show notes if you want to learn more about this iconic book. My guest this week is Deborah Grayson. We talk about her practice working with photos of institutionalized black women from the archives of insane asylums, and how she goes about handling this sensitive material without further exploiting the subjects. We also get into the history of racism within the scientific and health fields, centering the story of black women, and how she protects her own mental health while working with such difficult materials. Not to mention getting her PhD in American studies working on the history of black women and quilting in the US, and the healing power of walks in the woods. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get your stitch on with Deborah Grayson. Hi, Deborah. How's it going? Hey, Miranda. It's going great. Good, good. Thank you for joining me. I'm really excited to chat. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. This should be fun. Yeah. It's weird this side because I listen to you all all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, it's, it's funny. I've heard that before, you know, now like three years into this. Uh, I've had a couple guests say that is that they've been listening to the podcast and now it's like they've gone through the looking glass when they're a guest and they're like, well, now I'm inside of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On the other side. Yeah. Totally. Totally. So before we dive into my questions for you, if you've listened to the podcast, you know my tradition. Would you please introduce yourself by letting people know who you are, where you are and what you do? Absolutely. So my name is Deborah Grayson, and I currently live in Silver Spring, Maryland, where I grew up. I just came back after a seven-year stint in different places. Uh, I'm an artist, primarily working in printmaking and painting, and every now and then I make dolls just because I like to do that. And then... What role did art play in that part of your life? Oh, art has always been a central part of my life. I think I could draw before I could read. <laughs> so as very loving and indulgent parents, any art supply known to woman or man, I <laughs> seem to have at my fingertips. And then growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, of course, you're surrounded by yeah. um, galleries and museums. And so uh, it was like a 
daddy-daughter thing. My father would take me downtown and we'd go to the galleries or we'd go to the National Archive or the Library of Congress. And that was our thing we did on Saturday na- Saturday afternoons or Sunday afternoons, as long as the Washington football team wasn't playing. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, I lived in D.C. for an autumn um, during an internship, and I still have such fond memories, such a soft place in my heart for the art that's available to see, to experience for free. You know, the mm-hmm. mu- there's, there are museums you can just walk into. And I somehow, and maybe this is being a, a West Coast girl, but I just, I didn't know that before I went to DC. I arrived for the internship and was just blown away by the quality and the accessibility of the collections there. So it's it's definitely worth going for anyone well, who hasn't done it. Technically, you're paying for your tax That's dollars. That's true. <laughs> so. That's a very good point. So yeah, go get your money's worth. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And then, so you have a background in English and mm. a PhD and an MA, in American studies. So I'd love for you to talk about that part of your life as as an academic in those fields and where and how art making wove its way into that. (laughs) Again, art making was always there. I actually started as a commercial art major Mm. uh, at the University of Maryland um, because I wanted to continue to pursue art, but I had these fears that I would live in my parents' basement for the rest of my life. But I found that I didn't like it. I had a wonderful professor. Uh, I didn't like measuring. I didn't like people telling me what the composition should be. Yeah. And he was like, you know, you might want to go over to fine arts. (laughs) (laughs) So I did go to fine arts, but I did the practical thing and decided to be an English major. (laughs) Right. I was going to say, I'm speaking here as a philosophy major. So, you know, no judge. But yeah. 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 So I I took a lot of art classes and uh, English languages and literature classes. And I minored in government politics because I thought I might become an attorney. Mm -hmm. But it turns out my brain doesn't really work that way. Uh, so I stuck with English and, you know, had some fantastic professors, in, including the late, great um, Dr. David Driscoll was one of my professors mm-hmm. while I was at Maryland. And uh, so I graduated with a degree in English and uh, then went on to graduate school um, and focused on American studies, which is an interdisciplinary degree. It allowed me to uh, combine my interest in literature, science and um, history. And so... Those are the areas that I studied, and I still continue to make art and took classes. Um, and when I was writing my dissertation, uh, is when I really went down the rabbit hole of printmaking mm. and quilting, yeah. because it really helped me with the isolation of sitting in a little room, <laughs> uh-huh. reading and writing all day long. So I would get to my study carol at about seven a.m. and try to hang in there until four. And then I would walk across the street. There was this quilt shop at the time called the Looking Glass Quilt Shop. This was in Ann Arbor. And I would sit there and and quilt with the ladies and draw patterns. And that's what kept me sane. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so in your American studies, the actual I know with with PhDs you're doing is extremely, usually very, very detailed, focused work. Did Mm -hmm. any of that overlap with, with quilting at all? I mean, I know that's a... It's a great American tradition among 
a tradition in many other places as well. Or was quilting like, I need something that's not at all my PhD? Well, I think it did because uh, I study material culture. Oh, and okay. during the summers, I worked in like, the Michigan Museum, the Michigan State Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did some stuff with the Smithsonian as well. And so what I got to do was do uh, participate in and conduct oral history interviews oh, of nice. filters all over the state of Michigan. And so that was a lot of fun. I worked with um, Marsha McDowell, Dr. Marsha McDowell, when I did that work. And then my one of my mentors from Maryland, um, Dr. Gladys Marie Fry, had done a lot around um, 19th century quilt making and did some groundbreaking work on Harriet Powers, who's right. a 19th century quilter. So it, it kind of overlapped in terms of uh, the way I thought about and approached community Um the way I approach writing my work, actually, and how I uh, kind of attack the archives. I was always kind of looking under rocks and looking in places that people didn't typically look to find information about people. Mm-hmm. So my dissertation was this uh, combination. I, I studied um, the New Negro Renaissance, which was the 1920s to, uh, I guess, early 30s in the United States. It happened all over the world. Yeah. But it really centralized in, uh, I would say, New York, D.C., and Virginia were the areas that I studied. And so there were a lot of artists during that time, a lot of writers. And um, so it also factored in in that in that space as well, in terms of how I did the research and what I chose to write about. Yeah. And is that, would that kind of encompass um, what people refer to as the Harlem Renaissance? Is that kind of in the same time yeah, period? The- yeah. Okay. But I, I like to not be geographically specific gotcha. because it actually happened all over. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I think, um, uh, I as a you know, a, when I was I don't know, I guess like seventeen to twenty two, I was really, really interested in that uh, jazz from that time period, and mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. collecting records, and and um, so was just I have a bit of you know rabbit hole sort of studying in that period you know sort of from that and I think it's that's people are maybe more familiar with the term Harlem Renaissance but I love that pointing out that like it was going on everywhere and it's not just yeah this this one specific place that um was was blossoming in arts and culture yeah, yeah. right some people even argue we're in a, a, another version of that right now in terms of all the writing and the music and the art that's happening. So it's kind of interesting. I don't know if I buy that yet, yeah. but I do hear that a lot. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's a really interesting idea. And I think kind of gets to the question of like, okay, like, well, what, what do we mean by a renaissance, you know, and like what, like, how are we defining it? And is it, um, does it have to do with what's being produced or like maybe where cultural energies are being focused, you know, what's getting recognized at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As opposed to maybe all of a sudden people are, are producing more and maybe they're just being seen more, all of that kind of thing. But right. yeah, interesting ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And so you mentioned quilting. Um, but you also mentioned that doll making is a part <laughs> of your practice as well. Uh, can yeah. you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So, and I, I struggle with the term doll making in the U.S. just because I think people immediately think of toys or playthings. Mm-hmm. And really the figures that I make, they're mixed media. Uh, and I don't do them as much anymore, but they're mixed media made from clay, fabrics I've dyed and stamped and printed, and then um, 
usually wire or wood, depending on how big they are, or what I'm making. And so I really got into them um, as amulets, as, mm. you know, kind of representations of energy, um, you know, of spirit, um, you know. And so even in the series I'm working on now, I'm being pulled to make some figures because as I envision this, when I eventually do an exhibition of this new body of work, I see people kind of walking into the space and having these figures, these sculptural figures lining the walls. So, yeah, I, I move around uh, with the media that I use. Uh, I'll select whatever I feel like best tells the story. But, yeah, mm. I do. And so where does printmaking come into your story? When were you introduced to it? And what media? And why do you think that you were kind of taken with it, with all the other creative outlets that you had. It seems like printmaking has really become the, a, a dominant force in your creative practice, it looks like. It really, really has. And there are a couple of ways I would answer that. I think I was first introduced to it like a lot of people, probably in middle school, high school. Right. Uh, and especially in high school, we had a pretty strong arts department and I got to experiment with it. And of course, I started like everyone does, it seems, with line of cut. Mm -hmm. um, but I hated the tools and I thought, that, you know, those little, um, the rubber and those little hard to sharpen <laughs> plates. And so I would get frustrated with lino cut. And so I left it for a while. And then someone showed me, well, there are other kinds of tools you can use to do this. And I was like, oh. Um, so when I really got into it, I lived in Atlanta at the time. And um, I went and took a lot of different classes and workshops at the Atlanta Printmaker Studio. And so I learned like monoprint, monotype from Terry Dilling and um, woodcut and line of cut from Jerusha Graham. Um, they stand out because uh, working with both those women really sparked my interest and energy. And so I would do it on and off. Then I left it for a while and started painting again. And I love painting, but I think I'm just a good painter, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't know, printmaking brings together... It allows you to bring together so many things. I love the layers. I love the process. Um, I love the technique. So I love woodcut. I love the resistance of the wood to my tools and kind of um, trying to bring images forward out of that flat block, you know. Um, I have experimented with etching, which I enjoy, but it's just too many daggone steps for me <laughs> to get to the end. <laughs> Um, I have been pulled back into litho. I have a really uh, great friend and teacher here in um, the D.C. area at uh, Pyramid Atlantic. Uh, Melissa Ezel was teaching me. And um, I like it. I'm scared to fly solo just yet. Uh -huh. But what I love about it, because central to my practice, regardless of what technique I'm using, is drawing. I love to draw. Mm. And initially, I think I kind of brought it, bought into the idea that drawing was not an art form in and of itself. It was the start of something, but it wasn't the end. And mm. so I felt like I couldn't just do drawing. I've gotten over that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Litho really helped me translate my drawings Um in interesting ways. And so now I'm experimenting with wood lithography and um, paper lithography on top of woodcut, on top of collagraph. So that's what I'm doing right now, collagraph. So. Oh, wow. Wait, so this is me like showing my ignorance as a a print lover, not a printmaker, but wood, wood lithography? Do you mean like 
What does that mean? Yeah, so I'm just learning this, and I'm doing this with um, another friend, Fleming Jeffries at um, Pyramid. We've just mm-hmm. been kind of experimenting, going down rabbit holes. And I, one of the things I love about her is we'll have an idea, and then we'll both like run off, get supplies, and start research. So yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a Japanese term, and I, I hope I don't mess it up. I think it's mukulita is uh-huh. what the Japanese term is. Um but basically, you're building your plate on wood. And I'm no expert. I don't think I'm going to do it justice to explain. So maybe I'll send you some links for <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> listeners who can research it. So please, uh, you know, real printmakers, don't jump on me. But <laughs> I think so. We're using, um, I think, birch and cherry. Uh-huh. And you draw on the wood with the same kinds of litho crayons, um, Sharpie markers, Uh, on the wood. And it's the same process of uh, water resisting oil. And so you gum up the plate and you let it dry. And then um, you basically follow the same steps that you would for regular lithography. So we're experimenting with the best um, tools, the best like pencils, inks, markers, that will last on the wood and and going from there. You can't pull a lot of prints from them. Um, so far, I think we've been able to get like five to seven each. Yeah. Uh, but I, that's fine because I don't uh, particularly like running editions. I know. <laughs> and when I do, they're small. I, yeah. I rarely print more than 10 anyway. So that was perfect for me. So. Yeah, I was gonna say it's spoken like a true printmaker. I <laughs> know so many artists who get so keen and so lit up by the image making process. And then they're almost a bit crestfallen when they realize they have to edition it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I like pulling unique prints. And because I, what I love about printmaking, another thing is just the immediacy of being able to experiment and, you know, let change the image as you go. Mm. Um, and so that's one of the things I really enjoy. I think printmaking gets a bad name because folks are like, well, yeah, you can reproduce the image, you know, yeah. and I'm like, well, no, there's more to it than that. <laughs> and there's still original images, you know, so. Yeah, this is this is something that I really try to champion, particularly now. In my role in the gallery I'm at in Santa Fe, it's mm-hmm. not um, printmaking specific. I'd, I'd worked at a printmaking specific gallery before, and we're lucky enough that we represent artists who have really beautiful print traditions, uh, like Judy Chicago and Hung Lu mm-hmm. and Swoon. But it's also this constant dialogue with collectors. You know, every time they say, "Well, I want an original work," you have to be like, "I'm sorry." Um, is original and unique synonyms? I didn't think they were. <laughs> you know, you have to like delicately have that conversation. And, and again, you know, talking to them about how these media make unique qualities of image that you can only get through doing a relief cut or doing uh, an etching. There's no other way to produce that. And so they can exist because the image making itself is intrinsic to the desired outcome and the intent of the artist. And that just seems to be a hurdle a lot for people who aren't initiated into our club of, of printmaking. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think as I get deeper into printmaking, I'm trying to learn better how to help people understand what's mm. happening. And I think that's just a built in part of being a printmaker that you have to educate your collectors yeah. um, and the we're interested in your work. So I'm trying to learn well so that I can do that. But yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I 
we're doing an, an exhibition uh, next month that's from the Landfall Press Archive. And mm-hmm. I was writing the press release for it. And I realized, you know, you don't get a whole lot of words for a press release, you know, 800, 1,000 at the most. And I was looking back at it and I said, well, I've spent 80% of this just describing what collaborative printmaking is <laughs> you know you like I didn't even get to talk about you know the actual work that's going to be in the show and I think again as you say part of that education that we do being in the print world is is you kind of start maybe a couple steps backwards in any conversation about the work where you kind of have to say all right first of all do you understand what you're seeing <laughs> you know <laughs> all right yeah. now we can talk about the content but it, it's also really fun too to, to be that person who gets to open people's eyes to this process and to this world that really is wonderful. Yeah. No, agreed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, having this background in, in fabric arts, um, as well as printmaking, did that overlap at all? Because I always get an impression that maybe fabric arts and printmaking have a bit of shared traditions and they, they, they share a bit of the circles in the Venn diagram because I do know that printmaking on fabric was, of course, a long tradition mm-hmm. of producing fabric, you know, before uh, all the modern conveniences for, for making patterns. And it, it still is in a lot of ways, you know, various forms of, of silkscreen and, and woodcut, definitely, and other parts of the world, like like India, there's still a beautiful tradition of that. Did that ever overlap in your practice? Um, I, I see it in my future. I mean, I know that there are lots of folks in the U.S. who do that, who um, print their own fabrics, um, like bolts of fabric. I mm-hmm. will do it for specific projects. Even when I was a quilter, I would um, do stamping and screen printing on um, the fabric because I was more interested in my own unique designs and how they helped me tell the story that I wanted to tell. Um, so I wasn't as interested in um, commercial fabric. I would yeah. die and print my own. Um, but in this project that I've been working on, um, I have some textiles, some dresses, some basic uh, cotton shifts. And uh, I plan to print on those because they're a part of the story that I'm trying to tell in this um, body of work that I'm working on. And also with the dolls that I envision at the opening, um, I plan to print on the, the, the figures as well. So mm. I, I, I see myself doing that. So I, I do plan to do some printing on fabric, but my preference is paper. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like you, um, you know, wanting to have the fabric in your practice that looks like how you want to looks like how you want it to look is kind of sounds like that motivation is like, I know I need this fabric to look in this way. So I just have to make it look that way. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. So I'd love to switch gears a little bit and start to talk about the, the content of your work. And Mm -hmm. so, and, and, you know, you have multifaceted aspects to your artistic practice, but if you know, you're in the, elevator with a a curator from the National Gallery and they say, Debra, what's your work about? You know, what's what was sort of if you can kind of start us off with maybe that that umbrella view a bit of of where you're going, what you're doing, what you're trying to get at, you know, all those sorts of things. What would that sound like? Sure. Um, Well, my work centers black women and um, the stories of our lives, real and imagined stories about our lives. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm really interested in showing us in our full range of experiences and um, emotions um, and, you know, stories. And so Mm -hmm. I, I feel like 
there's still such a narrow box that we get forced into. And I'm really not interested. There are plenty of fantastic people who are doing this, but I'm really not interested in any kind of reclaiming stories. I don't really want to correct in in that way, at least, um, the narratives. I don't want to come at the story from the outside in. I'm trying to address the stories from the inside out. And in order to do that, I have to center Black women. Mm. So an example is currently I'm working on a project, which I recently renamed. It's called The Salt Eaters. It's inspired by uh, a work by Tony K. Bambara of the same title. And I've been focusing, I know this is going to sound bizarre, but again, one of my rabbit holes, I um, have been doing research on um, vernacular photography Mm -hmm. of black folks from like the 1940s on. And from there, I got connected to some archivists and musicians and scholars who've been doing work on... um, uh, hospitals that were focused on treating mental health mm-hmm. from the 1900s to the 1950s. Um, specifically, I've been looking at segregated hospitals in Maryland, North Carolina, Georgia, and I started kind of uncovering, you know, sad, um, really tough, uh, and I don't like the word resilient, but mm-hmm. um, I can't think of another word right now because resilience always makes it seem like you bounce back, but right. you really get up with dents and scars. Yeah, because like it's, it's you survive. It's yeah, exactly. <laughs> with, with something along the lines of resilience. Um, so I've been looking at stories of women who were um, imprisoned in these hospitals uh, for things like depression mm-hmm. and resistance to uh, white supremacist ideology. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I mean, you know, like normal things, the desire to want to be free, you know? Yeah. And so um, I've been reading stories. I've been looking at photographs and I've been kind of trying to think through the world as they were experiencing, experiencing it, not from the perspective of the scientists or the photographers who were documenting them to fit into their own racialized narratives of who these women were, but who the women were themselves and what they experienced. And so you'll notice there have been articles increasingly popping up, um, institutions like Harvard, where they have uncovered all of these photos, often uh, solicited by the institutions to uh, support racialized narratives around science. And Mm -hmm. so now there's this conversation um, that's heating up, thankfully, around, you know, the ethics and duty of care, um, the ethics of using photographs that perhaps, well, they weren't perhaps, they were definitely taken um, in uh, really horrible circumstances. What is your responsibility as a scholar and as an archivist? What about the descendants of those Mm -hmm. people? Um, And, you know, what's your responsibility to really round out the story, to tell the whole story? And this, to me, is incredibly important when you have things like what's happening in Florida, where you actually have the governor suggesting that they don't want to teach actual facts around history because it makes white people uncomfortable. And uh, this one gets me really heated (laughs) as an educator, as a scholar, as an artist, as as a citizen that we would somehow erase, burn books, Mm -hmm. ignore, whitewash, facts, history. And when that happens, you have things like insurrections and people 
lying to your face about facts or trying to gaslight you. And so for me, that makes the work that I'm doing and the work of my colleagues um, that much more urgent. And so I'm writing about some of this, but it's also important to me to have um, a visual um, documentation, but also uh, to do it in a way that's not continuing the violence against the people who have been um, misrepresented. And what I also hope, and this is how the work feeds me, is that it's a space to be still. It's a space of respite. It's a space to feel like you can be safe for a moment, you know? Mm. And so um, that's what I'm thinking about when um, I'm doing this work. That's a long answer to your question. No, I mean, like, there's there's (laughs) so much in there. Um, It was great. I'm just like, my mind's kind of swirling. I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to ask you about like every second sentence that you just said. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, 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 I'm really curious, maybe just from, from, from the top to unpack a little bit about, you said you're not interested in, in reclaiming stories. And I was really curious if you could maybe expand on what you mean by that, because that sounds like a really interesting philosophical distinction in what you're doing. Yeah, it's nuanced. And I hope Mm -hmm. I don't get myself into trouble. (laughs) I just want to say my small disclaimers, I'm still working through a lot of this myself. And so it may not come out perfectly. But basically, when I look over the landscape of a lot of the work, and and I get it. And again, this is not a critique in any way. It's just that I want to approach this from a different angle. Mm -hmm. But I feel like... um, Black people, people of color in this country are often put in a position where we have to react and respond to what's already out there about us. Right. And I feel like we we get so caught. I mean, Toni Morrison talked about how racism is a distraction from your work. Mm. So I don't want to be distracted from my work by feeling like I have to go tit for tat, toe to toe with the racist garbage that's out there. Mm -hmm. I want to get to it in a different way, um, to me at least, and that is to center, to put us at the center and move out from there. And so I think when we're centered, the story, sometimes there are different stories, or sometimes you get a different dimension of whatever the story is you're telling. So at case in point, you know, people will say that some of the photographs I'm looking at from the 1900s all the way up say a lot about the people and the images. Well, do they? Or mm. do they say more about the person who formed and took that photo? Yeah. And so they get to remain anonymous behind the scenes. We're not really looking at and digging into them, but we're making all kinds of assessments and assumptions about the subject matter. I, and I think you can hold both things. I'm not saying to cancel them out, but I'm really interested in, you know, Celia is um, that photo that a lot of people have seen that's from the Agassiz photos at Harvard. Um, the anthropologist, I believe, who took those photos or uh, commissioned someone to take them. And it's a picture of um, a black woman who's uh, enslaved woman who's um, disrobed from the waist up mm-hmm. and she's sitting and looking at the photo. And so there are all these stories about well, who she might have been and why she was there. The thing that caught me and it took me a few times when I looked at that photo are the tears in her eyes mm. and the clear um, from how she's sitting, you know, just trying to shield herself from what's coming at her. You know, the, the gaze of the photographer and the photo 
and how they were going to be used. And so if you're flipping the, flipping this, I'm thinking about, I'm trying to think about what Celia was feeling, what's going through her head, what was her life like before she even got in that, um, you know, situation where these people are using her as chattel and as uh, a subject to support, you know, their notions about uh, so-called uh, inferiority. Um, so again, I'm just I'm interested in um, how the story changes or what the story is if uh, if black women specifically for my interest are centered in that story. Mm-hmm. So it's nuanced because I think in reclamation uh, work that does happen, but I just don't want to start with you said this yeah. or um, I, I don't want to start there. I want to start on the other side. So. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of the the dialogues that were going on when Trump was in office and how we are saying that, like, we were just all chasing our tails, being outraged over the things that he said and distracting from the work of actually reacting to the destructiveness of it. It was just this it, and maybe it's maybe it's different, but it just kind of reminded me of that a bit when you can be so um, have such strong emotional reactions to what you believe to be just like horrible moral actions happening in the world, but that you can almost get stuck in this like stratosphere of emotion and outrage. And I think that Toni Morrison quote you said was just perfect for that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's exact. I mean, we're going through it right now with voting rights in the U S it's yeah. the exact same thing. You get distracted by the outrage. Meanwhile, they're stealing your votes. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I think also, you know, what you were talking about with this idea that people come to photography with feeling that it's objective in this mm-hmm. way that we don't to other media. You know, we have this feeling of of because it captures a moment in time, you know, more or less as it exists in that moment, we bring so much to photographs that we don't to drawings and paintings and prints. And so mm-hmm. this work that you're you're doing that's really sort of deconstructing that objectivity, I think, is so important and particularly for historians and for people who are engaging in history because we we think we see a photo from you know, 1922, and you can look at it and you think you're just, well, I, I have all the information I need about it, because there it is. It's a picture. It actually happened. Um, right. And I really love what you're saying about, like, thinking about the photographer, thinking about the agency of the subject. You know, I'm sure the people in these photos did not give consent to be photographed. No. You know, that no. wasn't in on anyone's mind. Um, and so you say, you you know, you're, you're working with these photos in, the, in your practice, you know, without sort of recommitting kind of the the violence that actually happened with the violation of mm-hmm. the photos. Can you speak to a bit of, of, of kind of how you how you do that? How do you how do you go about it? Because it is really important work, but of course you as you said, you don't want to kind of double down on the dehumanization um, or the exploitation that happened in the capturing of the of the original material. Right. Well, I'm struggling with it, to be yeah. honest with you. I mean, I, um, I have certain rituals that I do anyway before I start my work in my studio. But uh, the first thing I did was just sat with the photos and really looked at the people in the images and 
you know, I say prayers, to be mm -hmm. honest, for them. And I think about what their lives were like and what the potential lives of their descendants might have been like. Um, so that's one thing I do. The other is I reimagine them in different spaces. I purposely don't try to capture a specific likeness, but mm -hmm. more of an essence. Mm -hmm. So I'm not putting their faces out there again. Um, but um, and, uh, I, I want to tell the stories, but I want to tell them in ways that are caring and loving. And I admit it's a struggle because yeah. sometimes I'm wondering, you know, am I, am I recreating this? And it's, it's a constant question in my mind as I work. Um, but there's so much around psychiatric um, history and, and how we treat people in general and how um, Black folks at the intersection of mental health and medicine have particularly struggled and, and how to deal with that um, and how to arm people with information in ways that don't shut them down or make them want to opt out because they just, just don't trust the system. And there are plenty mm. of reasons not to trust the yeah. system, but we still need care, you know? <laughs> and so how, yeah. how you navigate that is, is also part of my interest. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and that's such a significant story about health and healthcare in the U.S. You know, I mean, everything from the Tuskegee experiment to the yeah. BMI, you know, the fact that like this measurement of health that was only based on the bodies of white men gets applied to all bodies in the U.S. and around the world. Mm -hmm. And then and then real outcomes are based on it, like like your, your health insurance cost, you know, mm -hmm. is based on it and, and and all these sorts of different things. So it's. Um, you know, this, and COVID and COVID. Yeah. Oh, right. That. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's, it's, it, it you know, and, and again, it, it has that, um, that long, basing on that long, long tradition of this idea that like the default human is a white man and everything mm -hmm. else is a deviation from that in some way. And so it's okay to, um, to base all of our, our entire society around the needs of of, of those people. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and I think I know more about it maybe in like, kind of like the, the, the physical healthcare world. Um, but it sounds like I can only imagine in the research that you've been finding that it, it it's just as prevalent in the mental health care world as well. I, I would imagine. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, again, from how someone is diagnosed, what they're diagnosed with to, um, the belief that we don't feel pain to, mm. um, you know, certain types of treatments are withheld or not even offered. Um, I mean, how stereotypes factor in. Um, and, and, you know, there's stigmas even in um, communities of color, Black communities specifically, that, you know, um, working within a mental health space somehow means you don't have faith. The belief oh, is if uh -huh. you pray through it, you'll be okay. And again, I get it, but I want people to get uh, to be well resourced, well rested, and well cared for. Mm -hmm. And so that sometimes means finding healthcare providers who can support us when um, we need it. And, you know, erasing that stigma. And, you know, when you're struggling with depression or anxiety, not believing that you're failing, but understanding yeah. that you're, you're having to cope through very difficult circumstances. I mean, I think the entire world, but especially the United States over the last uh, three years specifically, but seven years uh, total, if you consider the Trump years, 
Um, mm-hmm. we, we have this just ongoing grief. We have waves and waves of grief that have been unacknowledged and unaddressed. COVID has completely changed um, our lives. Um, things have just gotten more volatile. Um, I mean, we don't even care about our neighbors. We have people, yeah. you know, there are people in the world who want the shot. And we're, you know, saying there are people in this country saying they would rather die than get yeah. it. And so it's, it's, I'm, I'm looking at, it's interesting to be doing this work in this time. Yeah. Because I see parallels. I see a lot of parallels and it's, it's really unnerving if I'm honest. It's very mm-hmm. unnerving just to watch. So. Yeah, I've I've shared this anecdote before on the podcast, but it's something that I'll I'll never forget, which was living in Thailand during the pandemic and seeing people line up for 48 hours or longer just at the chance of getting a shot. And they didn't even know what the shot was. They didn't know if it was AstraZeneca or Sinovac or Sinopharm. And this, I, and, and I, I point out like the not knowing because I feel like there's so much dialogue about, like, well, I don't even know what's in those things, you know, here. And it's like, <laughs> and, and yet you eat hot dogs. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true vegan foodie. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah, seriously, though. And so it's like, and just how like, it really, it's really disturbing on a humanist level to see that, you know, to see the, the, the medical care in the form of these vaccines being thrown away in the US and seeing people Mm -hmm. in the country I was living in, you know, do anything they could for a chance at some immunity against the virus. So it's, yeah, it's, it's it's a lot. <laughs> it's a yeah, lot. It, it is. It is. Yeah. It is. And you mentioned kind of, you know, in the face of it all being a lot, but you also are looking for the work to be something of a safe space as well. So, yeah. yeah how, and I'm sure, again, this is something as it's all a work in progress and you're working through everything. But as much as you have kind of figured that out, or maybe you can even just share sort of your thought process, processes around how you're getting there like how can the work be so hard but also a safe space that's something quite yeah, that, the thing to take that on contradictory and bizarre yeah yeah i will say it starts uh with me because it has definitely stilled my mind mm-hmm. and i think being able to make work during the pandemic uh helped me a lot it was interesting because before that i was painting a lot. And something about painting, I just couldn't do yet another thing where I, it was so unknown. You know, mm-hmm. I think with printmaking, there's some guard guardrails there, right? There, mm-hmm. you have to do certain things to achieve certain things. And so being able to do that in a, in a weird way helped. The other thing, although I didn't know it at the time, when I look at it now, I stripped back color and I love color. Mm-hmm. I, I just love color. But the, the first uh, 12 or so prints that I worked on in this series were either sepia or black. That was it. Mm-hmm. And, and the color of the paper, which was white or cream. And so that helped me drill down in the images. And at first, um, I had kind of mixed feelings because I'm like, well, some of these figures look kind of, you know, static and I want more movement. But then it occurred to me that I was really trying to create stillness. Hmm. So most of the figures have their eyes closed or they're um, looking like recorder or halfway profile. Um but I, I, I was creating stillness in the images themselves. And I think there's just like a moment where you have to stop and take it in and look at it 
um, and look at all the the dynamics and the piece and that's happening in the piece. So in that way, I'm trying to create um, stillness visually, but it was also kind of stillness for me in the process of the making. So that's what I I think I've achieved so far. Yeah. <laughs> Remains to be seen, but this is what I'm working toward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and that that both things can be true. You know, something mm-hmm. can be difficult and still at the mm-hmm. same time, uh, which is, yeah, a, a, a wonderful thing to, to, to take on because I think sometimes when artists uh, look at, at, at making messages or making art around, like, some of the most difficult things in the world, which is some of what you're doing there can be this um almost sort of over the top like you can feel the the anger in the work in this way Mm -hmm. that i think can make some viewers almost just sort of dismiss it or kind of turn away or be like okay you know that's like you know i my classic example is is, it's trump on the toilet you know (laughs) like (laughs) that's just like like okay yeah i know you're mad i'm i'm mad too but i'm I'm not learning anything new you know i just know that you're mad and i'm mad and i everyone i know is mad and and i think it's really interesting what you're doing is 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 taking these extremely difficult and and sad and and just hard historic like bits of history and ideas and present obviously as you said colliding with history and making that space for for people being able to to sit with it and and contemplate and opening that door of if you can be still with this you don't it's not going to be that flash in the pan response um which can happen i think sometimes with more like in your face kind of work yeah right well i think you nailed it and those were the words i was going to use i really want people to sit with this and um and to not look away and i think it it kind of builds and and i wasn't doing it consciously but i i see it as i i finished the first kind of chapter if you will of the work is that they build on each other. The images build on each other, and there are certain symbols that repeat in some of the in some of the prints. Um, but I, I personally think that the only way we get to the healing is to be able to sit with mm-hmm. the hard parts mm-hmm. um, and to hold them or to hold each other in the mm-hmm. hard parts and to sit with each other in the hard parts. And I think one thing that um, the pandemic has done uh, and I think it's in part why we see such a crisis uh, and, and need for mental health services is that most of us were on this path where we were moving so fast and we're moving to the next thing. Very rarely do many of us take the time to sit with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so I see a lot of that. And I think you know they're calling it the great resignation <laughs> where people are quitting. Yeah. But I think people had the time to think about what they're uh, purpose was in the world and what their value is. And, you know, what what do you really want to be doing eight, nine hours out of the day? Uh, yeah. In some ways, I readily recognize that's a very privileged way to think about it. Um, and not everyone has that option. I'm, I readily admit and acknowledge mm-hmm. that. Uh, but I think a lot of us have had to sit down and slow down and rethink how we're how we're doing life. Um, and so I think that that uh, shows up in the work as well. I'm angry too now. There's lots of anger in yeah. there. But, yeah. But I just, uh, 
I tend to express it a little differently sometimes, mm. but I do. I do go on my rants every now and then. <laughs> you have to. It's, you got to. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's in, this this whole part of our conversation is reminding me of um, Desmond Tutu's book about forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but it's it's really amazing and of course it's if, been a while yeah. yeah if if anyone in the world could teach us all something about forgiveness right mm-hmm. it would it would be um reverend desmond tutu and and how he's really clear in the in the book that it's not forgetting forgiveness is not forgetting it's right. not saying it was okay what happened that's very very different but it's it's more about sitting with the pain and saying like this pain is real this pain is here and it might not go away but i need to release my connection to you that the way it ties me to you for myself right. and and how you do that is is through being honest about what you feel and being honest about like the human experience that both parties in it you know like went through right and <laughs> and that kind of slowing down and actually making space for what happened and not staying in the stratosphere of of the distraction of anger and outrage um but just being like no this is pain and i feel it and what you did was wrong you know and anyway it's 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 really amazing but it almost feels like kind of philosophically there's a bit of an overlap there between that message and the work that you're doing around like slow down and sit with this sit with these real human atrocities that mm. truly happened to real human beings who are like you like we are humans no one right. no one would want to experience this and these people did and like you need to be with this and understand it yeah 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 i mean i think it's true i think we often want to jump to the healing and mm. jump to the let's all come together but uh to your point for me that doesn't work if there's not been an acknowledgement yeah. and sometimes the acknowledgement um it's centered around anger and i think anger is okay i think people want folks to not be angry there's a phase at which people need the space to be angry yeah Period. Yeah. Um, but folks want the atrocity to happen, and then they want to say, "Okay, sorry." Yeah. And and let's move on. No. Yeah. And so that you know, I feel like there are conversations happening in the U.S. about healing that are way too premature. Yeah. <laughs> There's no acknowledgement. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. in South Africa, they had the what was it, the truth and and um, reconciliation. Yeah, the truth reconciliation. And yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And and here it's like get over it. Yeah, we didn't we we didn't do it, you know. Right. So what, what are you talking about? Yeah, so, yeah. All of that is bound up in in the work that I've been doing and and thinking about. Um, and I, as I said, it's really strange to be doing it in, at this historical moment in this current context because it's it's still true. There's so much that's still happening. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it's as you know, you mentioned the the legislation in Florida, which is. I always think about how it's like, oh, well, we, you know, we can't have white kids having bad feelings in class. And I'm like, you like, you know, these are the same guys who are like, why do people need trigger warnings? Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, I'm like, oh, like, it's so obvious that it's just racism. Like, it's so like, your veil is so thin. And it's just, sorry, <laughs> I'm like getting really angry as well. But it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's so, um, it's as you as you spoke to you know really wonderfully earlier just it's it's so present and in your face and undeniable and yet 
you know, people are just sort of skipping over it in a way, you know, of like, of like, oh, no, it's 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 about protecting the children, which is. But whose children? Exactly. Black black children and uh, Latinas and, and Native American children, all children of color have to deal with this. Yeah. And I mean, think of the children who had to integrate schools. Oh my gosh! Or, yeah. or you know, who even you know, not to equate the two, but you know, children in school districts now where they're trying to get rid of masks and they're going to school with masks mm. and being harassed. Yeah. You know, I mean, whose children are we talking about? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. be specific is what I. Have, <laughs> yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, how are you? kind of taking care of your own <laughs> mental well-being you know yeah. in and i and i say this you know in in the, the the face of covid in the face of 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 the work that you're doing you know like going to these dark places and 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 bringing out what needs to be brought out from them i always like to ask my guests who are doing really difficult work their best practices for mental health because one of the things that artists do that's so incredible is that they do the hard work but we never want that to be at the expense of the person behind the hard work. Right. So how how are you navigating that? Or yeah, yeah, it's been interesting. I will say that the first uh, nine months or so were tough, but mm-hmm. I have learned to dive deep and resurface. Uh, and so what that means for me is uh, I had to give up sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, that became a really important crutch for me. Yeah. Um, I have tremendous family and friends as a support system. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a nature girl, so I try to go and hike multiple times during the week. Mm. Um, I am really careful what I allow myself to take in on social media. I limit my mm. news. And I'm a news junkie. I grew up in the D.C. area. Yeah. but. I learned I could not do that and be sane. (laughs) So I I limited uh, to maybe 45 minutes in the evening. I I used to, the first thing I did was turn on the news in the morning. I don't start my day that way anymore. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, it's talking, um, it's connecting with uh, people, it's making work, it's going out in nature, and it's being still. Because uh, I'm the first one to say that that has not always been my strong suit, but I've learned to be still myself and not always do. And that rest isn't a reward, it's a necessity. And Mm. so I make sure that I have as much as possible appropriate rest on a daily basis. Mm. I think that is all very, very good (laughs) points. Um, And yeah, it, it makes me just think about how we live in a time in which, you know, you can, you truly could never rest. You truly could consume media and news 24 Mm seven. And that's really unusual. And I think our little brains can't handle it. And, and, and we're coming to a time where we're realizing that you have to make space for not working. You have to make space for, for processing because you're the way you live your life. You, it doesn't happen naturally without that, that conscious effort. And I'm, I've definitely had to learn that myself as well. Um, there's a, and now yeah. Our lives are so blended now because mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been working from home for the last two years. And yeah. so people zoom right into your space or they're, <laughs> yeah. they're texting you all the time. Yeah. And so I will silence my phone 
at mm-hmm. a certain mo- after a certain time, you can't call me. And um, I have a maximum per day of how much Zoom I can take. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, and I also tell people it's okay if you don't want to turn on your camera. You just need a rest from not only looking at yourself but looking at other people. Yes. <laughs> So. And like little trying to read facial expressions on those in those little boxes. Like, did that, did the CEO just get mad at me, or <laughs> is he checking his phone? He's looking down and frowning. You know? <laughs> so true. Yeah, yeah. It's there's um there's a book uh by a sort of a artist writer. She's actually a quilter as well. Mm-hmm. Her name's Marley Grace. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, she's she wrote a, a a book called How to Not Always Be Working. Uh huh. And I, my husband gave it to me, maybe hint, hint. Um, and, uh, and the, one of the first things she said was turn off your phone. And it, mm-hmm. it truly honestly blew my mind. I was like, I could just turn it off. Like, like, I, could, I, like I was like, that's an option. So someone can't reach me at 10 at night. That's mm-hmm. an option. Like it just, it really was a watershed moment for me. <laughs> so yay quilters and your insights <laughs> into, into uh, how to, yeah, how to not be working. I think that's, um, that's very significant and, and important. So yeah. Well, Deborah, before we, we end here, can you please let people know where they can find you and where they can see your work and follow this project that you're making? Oh, sure, sure. So my website is GraysonStudios, with an S, dot mm-hmm. com. And my handle on um, Instagram is at GraysonStudios, with an S. And uh, I have work. I, I usually use Instagram for just process shots. Mm. Finished work is on my website. And um, yeah, that's how you can find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really wonderful. And thank you for the work that you're doing. And please continue to take care of yourself and walk in nature and avoid hot dogs. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. So, So thank you again. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts with our editor, Timothy Pauschak, who digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with our guests. Also, if you've listened this far, you might be that special kind of print friend who would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us boost our ratings and help other people find the podcast. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Manuela Laura. Manuela is a Colombian artist making beautiful portraits of female social activists in her country. We talk about how her grandmother's illness brought her back to portraiture and linocat, how she goes about collaborating with her subjects to create incredible images of the powerful women, and papermaking with fibers from the different regions of Colombia. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Oh, 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 oh,